Hi, and welcome to our third episode. Um, yeah, by now, we're sure we're doing this on purpose. This week, Tanya and I are joined by... John. <laughs> we should keep all of these in. Um, yeah, you've said that before. I think we should. <laughs> this week, Tanya and I are joined by Seamus Travers, a street photographer who has been exhibited around the world, from Miami to the V&A. First, though, let's get some of the news items out of the way. Cue slightly annoying music. <laughs> so, uh, the thing that really caught my attention this month is that Canon have stopped selling their last serious film camera. They actually made the last one about eight years ago, so uh, they're hardly flying off the shelves. But still, the EOS 1V, um, which could shoot 10 frames per second on film uh, and had like 45 um, focusing points, that kind of thing, still sounds really impressive spec wise, but. You, uh, you better go out soon if you want one. What do you think? God. The end of film? No. Yeah. <laughs> Just the end of candid film. Yeah. End of an era, though. Like, I mean... But even I'm trying to think how many film manufacturers in terms of cameras are left. Like, I mean, Leica, of course, are always going to be building film cameras and Voigtlander, but the men of... But they also announced the end of the... Is it the M7? Only a few months ago. Mm-hmm. I think the MP they're going to be still doing, but I, I think they'll always make like a specialist kind of film body. But yeah. and no, there's no other real manufacturer I can think of that has that kind of dedicated kind mm. of film wing. And also, Leica is super expensive, mm. so for people that don't want to spend so much on on film camera, you kind of left going to. I mean, obviously, you've got Nikon, right? You've got Nikon that is relatively cheap. Um, are they but still playing in this game? I, I honestly don't know. No, I don't think mm. they develop. They don't make new cameras, do new film cameras. But you can buy older ones that you know for less than a hundred pounds. Mm. Um, well, that's just it. I mean, that's presumably why they've had stock of this for so long. Is that mm. they were trying to get two thousand for it um, for something that is amazingly fast, which is no use to a sports photographer anymore. And I think people are a bit more creative. But you wouldn't be looking for that sort of body. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Because even I, I looked at it and it, it, it looks like a digital SLR, except mm. it just doesn't have the, the screen at the back, the, the LED screen. And um, But even at first when I saw pictures of it, I was like, oh, it's, it's, it looked like a 5D Mark II. <laughs> the thing I thought was weirdest about it, it was even had a sort of metadata thing. It kept 100 films worth of um, essentially the metadata from each picture that you could download from you know whatever the equivalent of uh, a mm. USB lead was back in the year 2000. That's interesting. <laughs> I wonder... I mean, obviously, I shoot film, you shoot film as well, Seamus. That would be quite useful, but actually, would I bother doing that? I don't mm. think so. I don't think I would. No, I, yeah. I couldn't imagine so, anyone ever bothering doing it. Yeah, I mean, they've obviously made a business decision, and it makes sense. Um, but yeah, I guess it is the end of an era, right? It's uh, the death of film. Yeah. In a certain way. Yeah, I think I think that kind of film died ages ago, and this is just... You know, warehouse people keep catching up. I think film is not going anywhere. It isn't for those same big cameras that are, you know, news journalists, sports photographers, mm. that kind of thing. All right, let's um, let's turn straight to the next thing, um, which is admittedly more last month's news. But Smug Mug have acquired Flickr from Yahoo. Now, I remember Flickr. That's where I used to upload my pictures to. Right? <laughs> um, but has anyone heard anything of anything of them? I mean, I use Flickr. Mind you, I haven't uploaded anything to Flickr for around maybe a year or two years, but it's where I've definitely generated the most interest from the general public in terms of 
wanting to purchase pictures or asking questions, etc. So I still have it, and I still think it's a great tool. I think it's not designed for the general social media user, but I certainly see it's um, see the pros. Now, whether it eventually dies down and, and disappears altogether, who knows? But I think there are so many people uploaded thousands of pictures, I can't imagine it going away. Mm. As I understand it, SmugMug is more a specialist fo- uh, website for photographers, a uh, building platform like Wix for photographers. Mm. Um, so you can see the appeal of just... Flickr's mailing list, if nothing else, from their point of view. Yeah, to, or even data mine is what they have. And mm. but but even like I think I mean with Flickr, I mean I think maybe two thousand eight, two thousand nine was when I first opened up an account on it, maybe. And I, you know, there's been very little innovation, or the, the site has moved very little compared to the rest of the internet since Yahoo bought it. But um, even with a lot of file or photo sharing sites have been bought up I know like 500 pixels was sold recently and I think even like I think the first site I ever upload pictures to was DeviantArt and about two years ago that was sold and for very little money for a tech company if you look at the numbers the the sales aren't great you know it's um, no I did notice that acquired slightly smarter branding there recently Mm -hmm. so perhaps things will happen yeah what's interesting though is they don't seem to engage their users so I don't think I've ever received an email from Flickr or even DeviantArt Mm. so it's interesting that they don't seem to reach out proactively to get you excited about anything on their website so I think they're relying on their base of loyal users to just continue using it but they I mean I think a lot of photographers are the kind of people who don't actively don't like to be bothered by a platform do not want those mails all the time do not want little reminders all the time and I think you know woe to anyone who because as I understand it they're still getting something like a million uh, visits a day at Flickr. Mm. and part of that comes from the fact that their links are still built into tons of websites so you know if you don't update a page and you point it to a, a nice version of your image online it's likely to still be your Flickr one so that might be the main asset so you, were you a um, Seamus? Were you like a, a Flickr user? Yeah, but weirdly enough, I, I was never that heavily involved with it. Where I found I never got that much attention from it when I'd upload pictures. But I, I think you really ha- had to be very always like networking on it all the time. Um, like I do know some people that got a lot of good stuff or networks or careers out of it. Even uh, although weirdly enough, like the Seeker network which is like a social media wing of Discovery Channel, they had actually approached me through a picture I uploaded to Flickr. They had like the Gezi Park riots in Istanbul in 2013. I uploaded a picture to Flickr from that, and I got a ton of newspapers and also a ton of people taking the picture and then publishing it without my consent. <laughs> I, 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 oh, the power of the internet. The power of the yeah. And it was all true. Flickr really like uh, there was a newspaper in China that put it on the front page and then I found out it was from Flickr that they grabbed it but again good luck trying to get money or following up that with a legal case you know? yeah no, no I think the best you can hope for is not to find yourself in trouble when you're in China yeah <laughs> but, you know I actually agree with you because again Flickr the amount of messages I've got via Flickr from news outlets or you know people that want to publish a book with the image on the front or, or whatever um, it's all come via Flickr so there is something in it. It's, it's well, like, a difficult I guess one to say. We'll wait and see. I think though, like platforms like Instagram or Snapchat now, I think you know if you look at the traffic they generate, I think so much has moved in that direction mm. from Flickr. Like, 
Yeah. Just before we move on, I will say I did read that the, the guys that are like not interested in that, they say that that's a different world. Okay, uh, on the subject of uh, internet pictures, though, um, one of the things that has also happened in the last month is the big season of tech keynotes, which is Google I.O. and the Apple Worldwide Developers Conference, where they stand up and spend an hour and a half making the latest little feature updates to their operating systems seem like the biggest and most important things in the world. Um, and both Google and Apple are adding something to limit the time you're using a particular app. And both of them used Instagram in their demonstrations as the thing people are spending too much time on and is therefore driving them mad. But in general, what do you think of the idea that Instagram, and by extension photography, is the thing that is now taking up too much of people's time? Yeah, in- interesting how, li- like, when you think about 20 years ago, if you had told me that the one thing taking up too- people's too much time would be a looking at a phone with pictures on it or photography uh, you know 20 years ago you would have thought that's nonsense but um now playing snake <laughs> yeah but uh yeah i don't know nokia the old snake but um i mean i don't want to sound like a, an old kind of um, god am i starting to sound like my father now going god those people spending I, too much time on their phones it's... i mean i rushed to get that first iphone and i definitely also feel like that about all of this stuff yeah, because even that, like, I mean, you know, I, I, recently I, I was looking through old negatives and, I, and I've found um, an old stack of my neg, negs from 2006. And it was weird that, you know, these have been sitting in a drawer for 12 years and looking at the street photos from 2006. It's 12 years ago. It's not a long space of time. But the amount, everyone seems to be engaged, like the shots in, of cafes, people walking in the street, everyone is engaged with their surroundings. Now everyone's looking into their phone. And it's weird how these pictures are just from 12 years ago. And you would have people like just talking on a phone, but no one looking at a screen because most of them were old, the brick Nokias, a lot of them didn't yeah. even have any kind of computer screen or picture generator. Uh, and They've already made that one call for the day and the batteries don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But has that not changed the way you take pictures as well? Because I find in street photography that now people, you know, candid pictures of people in the street are of them on their phones. Mm. People are not, like you said, engaged with their surroundings as much. So it's an interesting, not only has it changed, you know, people's behaviour, it's changed as from a photographer's perspective, it's actually made things a bit more boring. Mm. Well, I, I thought of myself as an immense genius when I was taking a few snaps of people taking pictures in a gallery people so carefully line up mm. their cameras to uh, take a picture of something that I'm sure they can download a better picture of but then scrolling through your site Seamus I was um, you've got a whole conceptual series of yeah that. I did a whole series of people taking pictures and so because I remember I was in Florence and again it was just mad in Italy the way mm. on a bridge or in and there was like hundreds of people just with their cameras out and taking pictures and just really bizarre. And even recently um, in Dublin, there was, an, there was an election and before the result was announced, like by clockwork, just hundreds of people just raised their phones in the air to record it all at once. Mm. Like, like a, It's the instinctive In, in case nobody do. knows what happened, yeah. <laughs> they'll yeah. definitely have the one recording. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, it's just human behaviour, right? Something mm. happens, first thing you do, you take out your phone, record it and put it on social media it's just this bizarre kind of is it an evolution of behavior i don't know um it's sort of too quick for evolution to be the word but yeah i don't know but it's good it's it's 
what's happening, right? It's where the world's heading. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And you do see people holding up iPads to take photos. You do, yeah. you do. And they do look stupid. My yeah. mum my actually does that, and it just, I just want to say, put the iPad away, please. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I think you're seeing it everywhere, concerts, galleries, mm. and you have to wonder what are people doing with those pictures. So the quality of pictures out there has dropped significantly. So yeah. people that are spending time on Instagram or wherever it is, must be scrolling through a lot of crap, quite mm. frankly. Whereas, you know, only a few years ago, not many people had SLRs, and you'd find that phone cameras weren't great. So the pictures that you'd find online would actually be quality pictures. So it's interesting that there's been a shift in that sense as well. Mm. Quality has dropped, um, quantity has gone way up, way up um, and it's just about sifting through. So a lot has changed in just the last few years, really. Exponentially. Remember gigs though with lighters and camera flashes, yes. yeah. but now no one smokes, uh, which is probably good. Um, no, everyone just uh, no. looks at their phone instead and videos the yeah, entire concert. You just have a light, don't you? Sort yeah. Of a slightly blue, disappointing light on there. <laughs> um, oh, back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So there you go, kids. That's what you're missing out on. We've summarised it all. All right. Um, and just to tack into the end of the news, uh, last month um, my book came out, the second edition of The Complete Guide to Drone. So if you have any interest therein, finally fully updated with pictures of things that are a little more recent, uh, mentions of laws that are a little more recent, and there's even a section on how to build your own high-speed racing drone should you feel so motivated. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm very pleased with myself. Although slightly dubious photoshopping of one of the two drones on the cover, really sorry I did that. <laughs> I know. No one would have noticed. Yeah, yeah they would. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but at least I've apologised in advance. Um, check it out on Amazon. All right, so I think it's time to meet Seamus. Yeah, well, Seamus, we've known each other for how long? Good few years, over Good, 10 years. Yeah, maybe. over 10 years. So we're talking about back in our Deviant art days yes. um, when that was the thing. That sounds potentially more interesting than it is. <laughs> so Deviant art website that's really no longer used. Well, I mean, I'm sure it is used, but it's certainly mm. not a first place that I think photographers go to. Um, there was quite a large community of us on there, right? It was the yeah. first place I went to learn about photography, um, to meet fellow photographers. We'd have these little conventions if you want to yeah. call it that it's kind of nerdy conventions Everyone it was before Flickr before Flickr mm. um, it was kind of the original photography place to go mm. um, we obviously met on there fellow street photographer um, and I think we almost kind of grew at the same time didn't we in terms mm. of photography it's really really interesting um, but, you know I look back and think oh god my pictures then were horrendous and now it's interesting to see the styles and the stuff that we're, we're doing but you know Seamus obviously from your perspective You've gone into documentary, you've gone into wedding stuff, you've done mm. portraits, you've, you're literally covering it all, yeah. um, which is quite interesting. And, and most recently, I know you've been traveling to countries that don't exist. I yeah. mean, tell us a bit about that. I think this is fascinating. Yeah, like I, I have a few long-term projects that I'm working on. And I mean, one project I'm working on is going to take 10 years to complete, and I'm five, five years through. Um, the Countries That Don't Exist project... Um, I'm hoping I'm near the end now because in terms of money and time it, it, it's been consuming um, yeah so, so I'm doing a it's like a documentary or more like a fine art documentary and it's um, it's unrecognised countries or countries that don't exist there's officially 11 of them in the world and um, 
even here, like I'm in London at the minute, and I'm, I'm covering the uh, Kanifa Football League. And Kanifa, the countries that aren't recognised play in the Kanifa League. So it, it's kind of like the alternative World Cup. So it's for ethnic groups or ethnic minorities without countries or players from unrecognised countries because they can't play in FIFA. And so this is the league that they play in that's like an alternative it's not is it is it just eleven or is it that different countries have different perspectives? Yeah, yeah, like uh, officially to define a country that doesn't exist, it has to have its own government, its own election, its own borders. Like for instance, Tibet is occupied territory. It's not a country that doesn't exist. It it was a country, but it was invaded. Um, again, this is you know quite contentious even what I'm saying there because officially it's part of China. Uh, Taiwan is a country that doesn't exist because although we get our stuff made there, you know, it is a big commercial port, the UN can't really officially recognise it, even though it, it is a functioning country. Like the three countries that aren't recognised everyone's heard of is Kosovo, Palestine, Taiwan. Everyone's heard of those three. Um, I didn't know about Taiwan. That's interesting. Mm. So what are some of the others then? Because I know some are very unusual, right? People would never have heard of them. Yeah, like... Um, like some have been to twice, like I've been to Transnistria twice. Um, no, that's something someone made up for a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, because it, it essentially it would be in eastern Moldova officially. Um, now, now since uh, I've been there twice, when I went back the second time, they changed the name to PMR, which is uh, Prinestrovian Moldovan Republic. So they, they're still now kind of saying. They're still slightly unsure about it. They still don't have a vote in Eurovision. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and um, so Prydnestrovia is another name for it, or tra- but most people still call it Transnistria, like Trans, which is along, and the Dniester River. So the Dniester River is the border between the Dniester River and Ukraine, would be Transnistria. Huh. I have <laughs> Yeah, and um, yeah, I've been there twice, and then I've been to Kosovo twice, and I've been to Nagorno-Karabakh twice or Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh. But again, since I've gone back there last September, Nagorno-Karabakh is now called Artsakh. So they keep changing the names of these places. So, um, but yeah, and like Nagorno-Karabakh, I mean, I was there in 2010. That was the first unrecognized country I went to, and I was almost there by accident. And it wasn't until a year or two later I then got the idea to do a whole series on it. But even going back to... Nagorno-Karabakh, it, 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 there's been a huge amount of development. And I remember before when I'd first gone, it really got my interest in geographical places or geographical or cultural anomalies. Because um, there was like landing on Mars. And, and even for me, walking around villages and stuff, like people would just come out. And it was like the Pied Piper. Everyone would come out of your homes and just follow you going, what is this guy? What is he here? How is he here? And it was like people just go up and just poke you in the street because it was like you're an alien. Going back there last September, there was tourists, people hiking. Now, of course, not many tourists, but you would meet people from foreign countries. And they'd certainly cleaned up the country. Like like you can definitely, before seven years ago, or sorry, eight years ago, um, there was a lot of leftovers from the Karabakh War. There was far more burnt out buildings. Um like you'd see a football field and part of a crashed MiG jet sticking out it's all been cleaned up now Um, that's a shame yeah and it was so weird going back how there was a huge amount of development and again like there's a big Armenian diaspora pumping a lot of money into it 
but it's still a, a fabulously beautiful country. Like, like it, was, it was one of the most spectacular places I've been to. Like, it's like an unspoiled Switzerland without people. Like, it, so what were you hoping to get out of it? Obviously, travel there, see what it's like. But in terms of the actual project, were you hoping to capture a certain essence of the place? Or you just didn't have a clue? You just kind of turned up and thought... I will just shoot whatever I can. You know, did you have any kind of vision of, of what this would turn out to be? Yeah, like, like originally, when I first started doing it, I'd show up to these countries and, I'd, I'd, and you know, as a theme then, I'm starting to do, like, the independence days of these countries. So now when I go to an unrecognised country, I only go under celebrating their independence days. Uh, and I'm doing the photo series around that because I just think they have these quite nationalistic days and parades and I think it's kind of an irony that they're so proud and they're really like showing off their country but to the rest of the world no one's even heard of them or even recognises them in fact those are the days that are likely to cause trouble right yeah <laughs> and I, I just thought there was kind of an irony in that and I just mm-hmm. thought that, that that's a really great time to go and document them when they're celebrating their national days yeah. or in the no I days. was sort of thinking what's the visual of this and that's that, that makes every a lot of sense yeah and, and plus as well with these countries there's a lot of depopulation in them the only time where people come home or you see a lot of people on the street or crowds of people is on their independence days um, yeah mm. so have you had any trouble there yeah um, um, believe it or not the only trouble I've ever had w- was in Kosovo I had a bit of trouble but you know it's funny somebody met, was talking to me about this the other day and like particularly like you look at Transnistria it's incredibly safe I mean it is a police state there's a Russian soldier or sorry Russian peacekeeper air quotes every street corner every village no one's going to touch you when you're there but like for instance the, the country that I've probably had most trouble photographing is here in the UK the only time I've been arrested or harassed by the police the only time I've been beaten up is here in the UK so come on did you yeah <laughs> And so, you know, I could go to some... Like, people would go to me, oh, my God, Nagorno-Karabakh, you're going to die, you're going to get killed, you're going to get kidnapped. You go there, nothing happens, no one hassles you. Um, there would be poverty there, but no one would touch you. I remember um, I was in a village called Tok, and the, uh, I showed up, and there was, there's no hotels, there's no B&B, so you just go around the village, you knock on doors, and just make the symbol for sleeping, or ask if there's to sleep, and eventually you'll find someone in the village that there's a spare room or a spare couch you can sleep in. And I remember um, one man who, whose house I was staying in, his son was away. I was staying in his son's bedroom. Not exactly the Ritz, uh, because unfortunately the downsides, I remember when I pulled the sheets in the bed, there was like toenail clippings and dry oh, skin in the bed. Right. So it, it wasn't a Hilton, but um, I remember... He, he wanted to show me around the village and the area and we're leaving and I'd left some camera gear behind and I mean all the doors are unlocked and I'm like oh um, can I grab my gear and he's like he's like oh what, why grab your, your gear and I'm like oh well you, you've no lock on the door and he's like yeah so what and I'm like oh well what if someone takes my camera and he's like why would someone take your camera it's not theirs and it was really weird that he was kind of looking at me like an alien but again in this small village a very rural community everyone knows each other nobody would take yeah. something that's not theirs yeah. and so the idea of locking your door or someone taking something and even I noticed like I'd see cars with the keys in them you know <laughs> so wow yeah, you're not going to see that in a big city like London are you yeah <laughs> that would be convenient yeah if you could just leave the key in the door <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really interesting that is so I mean 
if we can just like move back a bit obviously you're a photographer when you decide to go around the world mm. and doing that sort of thing that's quite a challenge to set yourself up how did you get started how did you first go oh cameras are for me yeah Ooh, back in 1996 uh, my dad's a photographer okay and so he had his own dark room his own portrait studio and I remember I used to go around taking street photos and it was like a Nikon EM and then I just developed them mm. and then I got to college but I was studying animation and filmmaking and there was like a photography module in the college but I remember showing the pictures to people and they're like oh this is a vernacular photography so this isn't really art and you know you should really not pursue this so I was like okay I'll just pursue animation and then it was a few years about I'd left college and I, animation didn't really fit me. I, I worked on a few animated films, but I found it was like factory work. Pages, drawing, and just yeah. things, just a tiny amount. It, it, it's not as exciting as you know people make it out to be. I found it was like working in a factory. So I, I left animation and I spent a few years doing factotum jobs. And then um, I got a job in a darkroom developing pictures. Now this was like E6 transparency processing for commercial photographers. So we do the E6 processing, and this was early days of digital where we would drum scan the transparencies. And I was like, I think Photoshop version 3 or 4, maybe, yeah, 4 or 5.5, removing the dust off the transparencies before we'd send it out to print. Uh, but I found that, you know, a lot of the photographers, they were going off on location, and I'm stuck behind in the office or in a dark room where they're off doing more exciting things. Sorry, I can see how the photography would appeal there. Yeah. Than, and than the office. Yeah, and I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm stuck in the office. They're off doing stuff. So I started assisting them and I started ghosting them and I then started, you know, wanting them to do photography. And then eventually I just thought I'd go out on my own. I'd start working in photography. So started doing portraits, weddings to make money. Anything really, photo restoration, uh, framing anything to do with photography and then yeah I go out on my own and then a year later uh, the iPhone is invented and then there's a banking crash yeah. so it's perfect time <laughs> to go to go out on your own into business as a yeah, photographer yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone rushed to start their own business I was lucky that just before the crash and like it was a double blow I think for me the invention of the iPhone was as damaging to photography as a commercial enterprise as the banking crash like it was a really double hit and they came at the same time but I'm lucky that I started before all that happened like I'd set up a network and stuff and I mean it, it's crazy the way I, I remember a time where you know there was even a shortage of photographers in agencies they were crying out for photographers like I mean if you walked into an agency with a portfolio and there's pictures in focus it's like yeah we'll start you an assisting job you know that's not going to happen now even if you had the most incredible portfolio it, are you it, referring to citizen journalism with everyone being able to take pictures of events and yeah putting it, them on twitter and then news outlets obviously taking those pictures and using them yeah that, okay. like like in terms of as commercial enterprise i, I mean I, I know guys that used to do like travel stock photography that were earning like 90k a year they're not working as photographers now you know i mean the amount of photographers i know who are no longer in the profession or having to substitute with a second job like it's unbelievable like even like you look at labs like when like just i'll take my own city dublin i used to work for fuji training in staff for like pharmacies and like like pharmacy staff how to use the one-hour processing machines. Yeah. I think Fuji had 450 labs 
in Dublin. Just in Dublin? Just in wow. Dublin County alone. I think there's now six. So you're talking yeah. like a night... Where did you say that to me? I'm also like, wow, as many as six. <laughs> that yeah. So you're talking a 98% drop, and, and there was nothing was introduced to replace those jobs. Everyone is working in something else. Like, and, and even with all the photo agencies and various big commercial photographers that were like massive like airline hangers of production companies, the, most of those guys are now freelancers. It's two things. Like, In one level, yeah, you've got this democracy of photography, and it's great in one way, but from a commercial aspect... It has created a greater inequality in terms of money where the guys running Instagram, the guys running these platforms are earning billions, but the guys in the middle well, of working imaginary class... imaginary billions. Yeah. I mean, they're earning a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Most of it's just magic money that will probably never exist, isn't it? Yeah. And it depends on what the stock price is exactly. on the day. The only people who will end up with billions are the people who play it on the stock market, as yeah. ever, mm-hmm. with everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, you make it's a really interesting point that like photography and photographers... At this huge area of, you know, large number of jobs just disappeared because there was just no technical need for them. Yeah. And that slightly unfairly in a way because that hasn't happened for a lot of the other areas that photographers worked with, but maybe it will happen. Yeah, because even like if you look at different agricultural and industrial revolutions, like, you know, my grandfather was a blacksmith. Cars were invented, that put him out of work, but then more jobs were created by the car industry than the horse industry. So he went from being a blacksmith to a mechanic. And there was more jobs employed that way. And when you think about it, photography put portrait painters out of business, but the photographic industry employed far more people than the whole portrait painting industry. So I think when a disruptive technology comes in, we still, it's still early days with the transition in terms of camera phones and digital photography. But with a lot of the other disruptive technologies, they always created more jobs in the long term. But I haven't seen more jobs being created yet with these just new disruptive technologies. Now, I could be wrong. In five years' time, something could happen where everyone is employed. and you, you know, It certainly doesn't feel that way, though, does it? It, it, it doesn't. It feels like because people are now so keen to... You know, you think of all those commercial photographers making things look nice for catalogues, and now people are making themselves look nice with the products they're actually buying the th- you know yeah. cutting uh, anyway that's I remember I saw a picture on Instagram it was, a, it was a nice picture taken on an iPhone and Apple actually messaged in the comments they actually messaged the user saying can we use this on the front of whatever it was in one of their adverts I'm sure, I don't know what the, the whole chain of responses were but that person you know if they're not professional and they've read that they'll be thinking Oh, absolutely. My picture's going to be on the front of whatever, you know, billboards. And they're likely to say yes. So what it's doing is putting out, putting people that typically would have charged for that kind of stuff mm. completely out of business. So it's killed a profession for sure. Yeah. You were always but, flattered if someone asked you to be in the local paper, like to say something or to go, yeah, I won the school trophy or whatever. Mm. Um, and that seems to be the same level that people accept yeah. photographs now. They're like, oh, yeah, of course you can. Please put it on there. Mm. You know, why not have other people come and be rude about it? Yeah, like it's, it's crazy. I even hear now there's magazines that you, they want the photographer to pay them to feature their images, which is crazy. Like the, the, there was a time where, you know, the, you know, magazines had to pay you because, yeah. you know, it was a supply and demand. And 
I take entering on... competitions, having mm. to pay to enter a competition. Mm. Yeah, know, the to... people who run those competitions do very nicely out of them as well. Yeah. Um, you were saying that, so one of your images was in the V&A. Yeah. And you, so tell us the story. So you yeah, like... but basically, yeah, V&A had approached me about using one of my images. And I was going to be in a catalogue and it'd be displayed. I was about art of protest and I was like, fine. And then it just so happened there was a weekend that I was in London when it was on. I show up at the V&A uh, to see my picture and it was a paid exhibition. And so they wanted to charge me £10 <laughs> to see my own picture. That they were using. Did you say, do you not know who I am? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I want to speak to such and such who first approached me and all, and then they couldn't get in touch with them, and I was like... <laughs> Did you pay? No, I didn't. There was no way I would pay to see one of my own pictures in a gallery that I supplied them. So um, that um, that was the, was the Taskin Square? Taskin Square, yeah, yeah. And, and these are well worth looking up if you've not seen um, uh, on James's site. I do want to ask, a lot of your other photographs are protests. Mm. Uh, you, you seem to have a real knack of finding places where people are in some level of disagreement in the street. So how do you plan a riot? <laughs> Usually I, I just I, I ring the Illuminati beforehand and they, it all kicks off for me. <laughs> and um, Yeah, no, it, it's usually if you see smoke and then you run towards it, g- generally. But a lot of time it was just luck or... Like in that case, um, I was in Turkey actually to photograph a wedding and it all just kicked off while I was there. And I then rang up, cancelled my flight and stayed because I was only meant to be three days there and I ended up spending two weeks. Now, it was unfortunate that when I really got kicked off, I did have some work. I had another wedding to shoot back in Ireland and I had to go. Yeah, it was just a really interesting time to be there. And again, it was just I just booked a flight to Istanbul stayed as close to Taksim Square as possible and would just go down every day and photograph it. And it was just an incredible time to be there. It was like, I just felt the energy was like, it was like the 1968 student protests you always hear about or see yeah. pictures of. And it had such an amazing energy in talking to people. And yeah, it was an incredible t- time to be there. So there's the shot of the, the guy in the Guy Fawkes mask uh, or V for Vendetta mask, depending on how you like these things, who's um, just got a bus sat on his relaxing in the seat of the bus and mm. presumably smashed out window yeah and he's just kind of chilling and I mean it's incredible kind of I don't know contrast in, in what's mm. going on there I mean you just have an eye for that stuff don't you I mean yeah. there wouldn't have been many people that would have captured that scene the way you did because presumably mm. people would be panicking and, and just be trying to get out of the area but you're rushing in yeah like it, it's kind of like in those very high intense kind of situations or moments or it just lends itself to very extreme pictures or very extreme aspects of humans coming out and like with that that was actually probably one of the first pictures I took in Istanbul because I remember um, I found a hostel that I I could stay in and I was walking up Istakal Avenue and there's loads of people about people at cafes and I'm looking around going okay this doesn't seem like just any kind of riots going on or any kind of manifestation happening and I remember then I just turned a corner towards Taksim Square and then there's just that burnt out bus there. And I was like, oh, wow. And again, just there's a guy sleeping, napping in, a, in the front seat in a Guy Fawkes masks. And then I'm like, okay, the, the, something has happened here. Like it, it, it's, and, and again. And it's, I love the, the smile on the mask as well. So he looks really <laughs> pleased with himself because he can't help but 
uh, the other theory I was developing um, from looking at your work was maybe just that you knew somebody who sold those masks. <laughs> they, they, there's, uh, there's, you've got a shot in Dublin with somebody wearing one, and there must be others like they, they do just seem to be associated with riots and uh, yeah and, dangerous and, situations. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, if all else fails, you can also use them to take a photo of somebody hacking for a stock photography site. Yeah, <laughs> put them in a hoodie, dim the lights slightly. Make a lot of money off that. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think Alan no. Moore, who, who wrote V for Vendetta, I don't think he's ever Not, got a penny. <laughs> Well, he didn't like the movie, did he? Yeah. Now, I was going to ask you, um, have you ever given any thought to, or how do you describe your style? Yeah, like, I suppose, like, if I do have a a main kind of style, it is, I would say, standard street photography documentary. Um, But recently, the last few years, I have been moving away from it. Like, I mean, when I first started doing street photography really seriously like I would get up in the morning and it'd be like the first thing even before I, I go to bed you'd be thinking about it and you just co- I couldn't wait to get out and start running around the streets taking pictures like there were days like where I would book a holiday I'd go to Italy or somewhere and I'd spend 16 hours walking easy just doing street photography now um, it, it's kind of like I don't know, like a, a love affair or a relationship that's now starting to hit the rocks where you first, at that initial stage, you were totally in love and everything's perfect and now it's starting to kind of fall apart and you're starting <laughs> to kind of... You're not going for dinners anymore. Yeah, and it's kind of like you're just sitting in watching telly and that, that's like my relationship with street photography now where, I, I mean, I still do it and even today walking around, I still have my Leica camera, I still... I mean, I still shoot a lot of film, 35mm and street photography, but I'm starting to experiment with different formats now, different genres. Um, I have, like, a panoramic camera that I'm starting to experiment with. I'm starting to do a lot of panoramic street photography. I that must be using that, actually. I mm. think I've seen that a few years ago in Dublin. When we met there, you had this camera, and it was... It was a panoramic yeah, film it's, camera, It's right? a Hasselblad X-Pan. Yeah, that's it. That's and really it. a lot of fun. And now I've got, like, a Horizon, like, 180 degree. It's almost like a Lomo camera. Um, that's really a lot of fun and really hard to use because you have to get so close to use it. Like, it, it is... In, in... And how do you make sure there's stuff going on everywhere in the frame? And that's the problem. You have to get the frame filled. So it, it's really difficult to use to get that moment where... You have such a wide shot and the whole frame is filled with something interesting. It, it's such a challenge. So I'm start, it's, it's almost like starting photography again. Mm. And is that something, well, I guess you mentioned the street stuff, kind of falling out of love in, with street. Mm. Is that because it's become easy for you or is it is it just not yeah. as challenging? Is it yeah, I, I find it, it's, it's kind of like, it's like one of them things where you, you're in a band and you're just playing the same type of music all the time and... I think another reason as well, just like when I started, there was like street photography was a minority sport. The amount of people doing it now, especially with like even now, I find if I see something interesting in the street, I've run over to take a picture. There's already 10 people with their iPhones out. So now the challenge is to see something that someone with an iPhone isn't going to see. And like, I mean, I still love it. It still is my favorite genre, but. I'm starting just to experiment more with, with, like, even now I've got, like, a stereoscopic 3D camera. Um, so I'm doing 3D photography. 
and it's going to be street photography. Um, I use a camera from World War One, so it's 105 years old, this camera, and I'm starting to do street photography with it. And it, it's, again, just totally messing with the genre that even though this is like Victorian era technology, like stereoscopic 3D is even older than photography. Like they used to do it with illustrations. So I, I think 3D, 3D imaging beats photography by about five years in terms of how it was invented. So like this, even though this is like a World War One era uh, camera, uh, at the minute I'm trying to develop an app that you use Oculus Rift and VR plugged into a phone to view the images. So it's trying to take... That's, that would be cool, because then, yeah, you can catch a, a slightly different generation, if you like. With, yeah, uh, and so it's trying to merge 21st century technology with World War One technology. And I'm doing... And accessibly creative. I'm just, I'm just trying to work out how you might be able to actually have encourage people to take the images, or is that... Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of filters and stuff now. Like, there's even, um, like, little prisms you can attach to your phone. Like, for me, um, I'm I'm trying to tie it in with a project I'm doing that, like, in Ireland, we've got a decade of centenaries where from 1913 to to 1923 was a a decade of really significant events in Irish history. So I'm trying... As an Englishman, I'm about to hang my head here. (laughs) At least one of them's going to involve us. Yeah, I think they pretty much all revolve around England. Like, We're really, really sorry now. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, in fairness, most of the damage we even did to ourselves in the Civil War. Like, uh, I think more Irish people died in the Civil War than in the War for Independence, ironically. But like, I'm trying to tie in, so I'm using a 100-year-old camera or 100-year-old cameras to document Ireland today and the various events or places involved from 100 years ago. So it's almost like if, if there's... There had been no, um, in terms of imaging technology, there had been no development and you're still using the same cameras. And initially, when I first started it, you know, I was thinking, oh, will I just go and photograph these places today with a digital camera or regular film camera? I thought, no, it's been, it's been done to f- before. You go online, you see all sorts of people with blogs, like, here's this place today, you know. So I was thinking, like, how did people take pictures back then? And I remember when I first started collecting and buying the cameras from 100 years ago, people would say to me, oh, you, you can't use them. And I was like, well, hold on, you can. And how can you? And even for a lot of them, I have to make the film from scratch. Yeah. Like, for instance, this stereoscopic camera here, they don't make the film anymore it's an extinct obsolete format so what you have here it operates like a large format camera so you have these plates and um what i do is in the dark room i have a guillotine of course you have to do it in the dark so you get a sheet of four five film make sure it's emulsion side up and then with a guillotine cut it in half now i have Uh, for those in listening only he's still got all his fingers yeah Yeah, and it's like, do it without chopping your fingers off and touch wood. It hasn't happened yet. And this has to be pitch black, Oh, it has to be pitch black. You can't expose it to light at all. That's unreal. I had no idea. So you're actually creating custom film for this camera. Yeah, like literally making an obsolete format useful again. And, and, And even with... I have like a, an I old. You've got a huge amount of arts council funding or whatever the equivalent is for that, because that really feels like the sort of thing. Yeah, and, and believe it or not, I, I've never got any arts council or grants for it, and I've applied multiple times. But again, I think uh, don't even get me started. But I, I think 
if I had like a more postmodern perspective, you'd get uh, funding because I, particularly in, in Ireland, like I'm looking at with all these historic events, the photographers and the art that gets funding for these decadent centenaries, it's very postmodern. It's like, I mean, I'd seen there's one guy did a whole series of photographs of potholes. Another guy had... And pe- was funded. And was funded oh. to 16,000 euro. Wow. And there was another one that a guy had people in nappies doing <laughs> interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. And and how much did he get for that? Again, I think it was like eighteen thousand euros. Unbelievable, and really. Like, like one of the things is that what I did was I took anytime someone gets the Ostana, which is like the Irish Arts Council. Anytime someone gets funding, I take their written dissertation and I put it into a software program, and it starts to generate a word cloud. <laughs> and so I've taken all the dissertations and all the theses. And I've put them into a word uh, generating software. And it's actually generated a thesis for me. And so the next year, next year, I'm actually going to submit this thesis with it. That's a great idea. But the weird thing is that the software that generated this this thesis, all all the dissertations said the same thing. That there actually wasn't, even though the pictures were completely different, the actual written statements were all the same. And there, there's actually word patterns that, develop and that's the weird thing that essentially you can generate it into one sentence which is deconstructing preconceived notions of the past that sounds like a sentence i've heard before from, yeah know, and yeah. that's essentially what is a lot of postmodernism is and and literally you all these theses you could you'll have to come back and tell us whether this is uh, you know the computer anything is successful or not yeah um or we can move on to the other theory which is at the bottom it says by the way, my parents and yours were friends at certain colleges. <laughs> yeah, uh, and even uh, th- th- there is that, particularly in Ireland, that nepotism factor. You understand we have Oxford and Cambridge in this country. Yeah, <laughs> or, or kind of like you, you look at old Eton photographs and you see the whole all the and powerful all elites. Yeah, <laughs> all went to the same school together by coincidence, and even a lot of very successful actors all went to Eton. And you know, since I moved um, moved to London, like you do encounter people quite often. They'll say, "Oh, what school did you go to?" And you know, they will expect it to be talking about you know an Eton or what have you. I mean, they don't ask me that often because it clearly I didn't. Mm. But um, you do definitely hear it in conversations. Um, I just I couldn't believe that. I thought society had moved on, but no, no. yeah. Yeah, like I think here, like, like I suppose it's going off topic, but I think here in England you've more of a class system than in Ireland. I, I think walking around here in London, like, you, you know, you see council estates that I'd love to go around and photograph and document that, like, we'd have bad areas you in Ireland. You those acid attacks. Yeah, I, I just find that you, I'd see estates that are poor that I, I wouldn't see in Ireland as bad. But also you go to Knightsbridge... And you see a Ferrari dealership yeah. that you don't get in Ireland. So I find there is that extreme wealth here and also extreme poverty. We have, we have wealth and poverty, but we also have class is separate. It's, mm. it's not quite the same thing. You can be very well off, but not having gone to the right schools and stuff, you'll probably still be quite looked down upon. Mm. Um, and you can be you know, falling on, well, relatively hard times, shall we say, but, you know, if you had the right background, um, you'll still get on with certain people, you'll still be able to get certain meetings, it's, you know, we're weird. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I remember I had a flatmate once uh, who was, weirdly enough, we would, not to be politically incorrect... uh, Oh, why not? uh, 
we in Ireland would call him a West Brit. So he's Irish, but he's pro-English and very wants to be British and speaks with like a fake British accent. And I did so, wonder if you had a word for that. Yeah, so it's West Brit is what we'd call me, a West of Britain. That's quite a derogatory term. But it was weird the way he'd meet someone who had a title like a baron or something and he'd be like, oh my God, such and such. I met this man and he had a baron title and like this is someone special, like they're, they're almost this godlike entity. And it's like this person can't even afford to put fuel in their car and you're, you're, you're looking at them like, oh, they, you know, they have a knightship or they have a title, but they could still be living in, in poverty, but they were related to the Earl of, third Earl of whatever, you know, and it, it's an interesting thing, the whole titles thing. I just, as an Irish person, I, I just it's, don't get it. I just, yeah. So earlier you said you were in London because of the not World Cup, World Cup, yeah. uh, the football for the unrecognised countries. Um, how are you going to be covering that? Yeah, like it's a difficult one to cover, like, because, I mean, it's a sporting event and it's so different from when you're visiting these countries because, again, um, a lot of the fans can't travel. That, I, I mean, the problem, like, say if you're an Abkhazian, your Abkhazian passport isn't going to get you too many countries because... No, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, because yeah. and, and even, like, I remember when I was in Transnistria, everyone would either get a Ukrainian or a Moldovan passport or Russia would grant you a Russian passport, but your Transnistrian passport, you, you, you can't travel on it. What's so, the point of it, then? It's just... ID, an ID... If you are suitably yeah. proud of your country, you will want a passport. Yeah, and it doesn't actually get you anywhere. I'm yeah. just resisting going down a thing, being rude about people who want blue passports. <laughs> and, Let's and not it, go there. <laughs> I th- but I think though, if you know you're staking your claim, this is our country. You need your passport, even if no one's going to recognise that passport. Like even like Nagorno-Karabakh, I remember someone showed me a Nagorno-Karabakh passport when I was there. And again, they just have to travel on an Armenian passport because no, nobody recognizes it. But I remember it was interesting when I was in North Cyprus, like most people in Turkish North Cyprus, they travel on a Turkish passport. Uh, because again, Turkish North Cyprus isn't recognized. Um, yet it's full of British tourists. Um, you just hop across the border and it's full of tourist resorts. But I remember... At the, there was an Abkhazia versus North Cyprus football game. And there was hundreds of Abkhazians at it going crazy, really passionate and enthusiastic fans. And I remember going, oh, why are there so many here? I remember chatting to people, like, oh, well, I'm a student here. I study at the university. And apparently there is an Abkhazian diaspora in North Cyprus because North Cyprus recognises Abkhazia. So they actually travel ah. there and they actually live and work there and go as tourists. And I remember even going to the beach and seeing an Abkhazian beach towel flag. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of the, the, the countries that don't exist do recognise each other because even in uh, Tiraspol in Transnistria, the only embassies you see is the South Ossetian visa, uh, uh, the South Ossetian embassy, the tr- and like you no know, Transnistria recognizes the other non-existent countries. So Abkhazia, South Ossetia have embassies there, but you won't see a US embassy. You know, I guess and, there are many United Nations. And yeah, it's so weird to have their own like little alternative United Nations that the <laughs> that they stick together. Like, so what's the atmosphere like at this football tournament? Is it? I mean, there aren't presumably many fans there. Yeah, there, there wouldn't be that many fans, but it, it's a really great little league. People are really friendly. I, I, I like the atmosphere at it. Like, it's quite quirky. And, and are you pointing the camera at the fans or trying both. to cover the game? Go, go, I, I, I photographed both. Like, I covered the game. I'm, I'm trying to do 
pictures, like portraits of the players, like portraits of the people of the diasporas and photographs of the players. And I'm trying to tie it in with the kind of, I don't know if nationalism is the, is the right word, but I'm trying to tie it in how people are really proud that they're from these places. And there would be a, I don't know if nationalism is the right word. It's but, tricky because the word nationalism seems probably fine if they're proud up to a sensible degree. Yeah. But then I tend to associate the word with people who are inappropriately proud of mm. their... Yeah, like I, I, I think like particularly like in Ireland, like people waving flags at football games and, and, and being very nationalistic isn't really seen as a bad thing. Like recently, I remember, like in other places like Germany or even England, nationalism sometimes has a far right connotation or uh, pretty much. De- I mean, like if you're seen with a cross of St George, not on your way to at or very soon after a football game then you're probably a racist. Yeah, yeah. and this thing, like, I remember uh, I was at an event about two years ago and there was a historic site in Dublin that was going to get knocked down and bulldozed. And it was kind of like our version of the Alamo where the last of the Irish rebels were going to have to surrender to the British. And this was their last stand in this house. Now, it looks like it's, a, you know, a Chinese takeaway beside it and then it's an old shopping district, but it was going to get bulldozed. So all these people went out to protest, but they all had their Irish tricolours out. And I was going around, and again, I had cameras from 1916 when this event took place. I was photographing it, and I remember uh, a Polish woman came up to me, and straight out of the blue she said, are these people Nazis? And I was like, what? And she's like, are these racists? And I'm like, is this about racism? And I'm like, what do you mean racism? I, and I tried to explain to her, and she's like, no, look, they have their flags and they have their faces painted. These are nationalists. And I'm like, no, it, it's, they're tr- it's about history. They're trying to save a historic listed building from getting bulldozed. And because it's to do with the history, that's why they have all their flags out. And it was interesting, like, from her as a Polish person, she's, oh, well, in Poland, these people would be the far right. And I'm like, no, it isn't. And it, it, it's interesting... That in it's weird, it, isn't it? In this country, you know, the people who are trying to protect buildings tend to be the, you know, national trust people are, are like, oh, please let's not have a third runway here. Yeah, you don't <laughs> associate them with the the people you would call nationalists by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, but I, I suppose as well, even like I remember in, in Serbia, seeing guys that were like that after a football game, and I, I don't think in Ireland, I don't know, in the last twenty years anyway, that, that there hasn't been any kind of. Like I think we're too laid back now, or I I, I don't know. We, we I'd say that's part of the international Irish stereotype, certainly. Yeah, and I think it. We, yeah, we, we never had an empire, or we never, you know, I suppose because we were colonized ourselves. Our view of history is very different, or our outlook um, is very different. I think. Yeah, I'm gonna have to keep quiet at this point as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think we might have to call it time there. Um, it's been really great speaking to you. Mm. Yeah, great. So where can people find your work? Yeah, um, if you go to... It's basically my name. It's uh, SeamusTravers.com. Um, and, like, I'm not that active on social media. I, I usually promote myself through my website. I'm not that... Act- yeah, again, if you see some of even my social media links, I'm, I'm quite dead on social media, but my, my website would be the main place... Uh, to find me uh, uh, yeah so it's just my name SeamusTravers.com which is refreshing you've got your own website and it's great 
Yeah, it's, yeah, cheers. it's great. You find all of his uh, conceptual series there that we spoke spoke about. Um, and right on the front page, a picture of a horse all four feet off the air in the middle of Dublin. Yeah, which people would say is technically impossible to get a photograph of. It, it, it uh, looks like it should be impossible. Yeah. And it really looks like it should be impossible if you are the kid on the back of the horse. <laughs> um, and if that's not enough incentive to go to that page and have a look, I don't know what is. Yeah, I, I think it's one in a million photographs when you photograph a horse that happens. So it's, it's quite rare. <laughs> and captured on film, right? None, and, none, and on none film. Of your, you know, five yeah, that, million shots in a Was second. it one frame? One frame. Unreal. Uh, Kodak portrait shot in a, a wind up like a. Like so. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, you rush there and have a look. And then rush to Amazon and buy the complete guide to train second edition. <laughs> uh, that's goodbye from me, Adam Juniper. Goodbye from me, Tanya. And goodbye from me, Seamus. <laughs> oh, there was a thing I didn't get to say. I was actually thinking about okay, it go on. on the train here. But I was thinking about um, just the way you've got, in terms of supply and demand of pictures... Uh, like Jean-Paul Sartre had a quote about, you know, when there's an oversupply of something, it does create a new kind of scarcity, a scarcity of demand. And I think about that with photography and particularly earning a living through photography, that there's such an oversupply of pictures now, particularly with social media and camera phones. Like, I mean, trillions or billions that's getting taken. It's really hard to stand out. And I think that's why a lot of the stuff that I'm going to is more very uh, hands-on more printed material or even like with the stereoscopic viewing you either have to have an oculus rift or there's going to be a flick book with 3d glasses that come with it um but with just so many pictures now being taken that i remember like particularly like the historic events of like 1916 i'd go to the national archives and i'd look at all the pictures that are archived from a particular historic event and you might get a couple of hundred, like like one week of a city being bombed, you'd have maybe 1,400 pictures. And then I'd cross-reference it with how many pictures of cats in Dublin <laughs> were uploaded that day, and you'd have like 20,000. And the whole vast supply, and it reminds me of like an economics way of quantitative easing way you literally have to keep printing so much money and you, you have like Mario Draghi head of the national you know head of the EU national bank or finance I mean you'd see footage of him sitting in the computer and they keep adding these zeros onto all the euros that's in circulation or the US dollars and for me it's like the quantitative easing of yeah. photography that you just keep in printing and producing mm. more and more pictures and it's it's so what you're essentially doing is differentiating yourself by almost taking a step back and doing something different that people aren't doing. Yeah. So that you can be seen as unique in some way. Yeah. And, and like a, a lot of now what I'm starting to do is where I take a black and white photograph, I print it, and then I hand paint it in the colour uh, like they used to do 100 years ago. Um, so Gosh. now it, it's almost like I'm literally like Bob Ross with a black and white picture and an easel and I'm painting in the colour. And to give it a real vintage kind of kitschy look as it would have been 100 oh, years ago. Or you could use an Instagram filter. <laughs> same effect. Feels like you're missing the point on first. <laughs> I'm a millennial, what can I say? Yeah. No. yeah so we're all no. of us, I guess.
no, depending on we, your definition we, of millennial. You've spoken mm. about this. I'm Gen, Gen X. Gen X, okay. <laughs> I think I'm 1979, end of 1979. So you're Gen X okay. too? Yeah, I'm, ju- I'm just in between the Gen X and the millennial. I just, uh, it's a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, I-